This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where we take a closer look and dig a little deeper into this week's sermon. What's going on, Bible nerds? Today we're talking about Genesis 9, so let's take a closer look. Let's do it. So this is a really, it's quite a fascinating chapter. Um, When you really think about it in the context of the Genesis narrative up to this point. So where we're at, we have skipped ahead. Last week we talked about... um, Cain and Abel, and we briefly introduced the beginning of the Noah story, but now we've jumped past all of the flood part of the narrative of Noah, and we've come to them post-flood. So this is post-flood, and God begins to make this covenant with Noah. And interestingly enough, the covenant or a piece of the covenant that he makes with them is some changes. So the big piece is this is where we get the rainbow narrative that God's sign of the covenant is that he's going to put a bow in the clouds. That's always a reminder for the covenant he made. They've never destroyed the earth again by water. Right. But the other thing that's going on here is it's a parallel, um, command story to Genesis 1. So I'm going to start reading in verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Clayton, where did we see that before? Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Like literally the exact same language. Yeah. It's, It's almost like God is starting over with Noah. He's gotten rid of all the corruption that he saw in the world, and now he's starting over with Noah, and he gives them the exact same command okay. that he gives to Adam and Eve. Now, obviously, sin has already entered the world. Like, uh, like all of that element is not gone, but God is starting over with the most righteous man on the face of the planet and his family. Okay? Starting over completely with the exact same command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, he goes into some dietary stuff. Um, so this is also the first place that uh, humanity is ever given permission to eat meat. Because mm-hmm. up until this point, they haven't been allowed to, and now this is the first place where we're told in the narrative that they can eat meat. And then... In verse 5, it's interesting. Verse 5 says, For your own lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal, I will require it, and from human beings, each one for the blood of another. I will require a reckoning for human life. Mm -hmm. Remember what we talked about last week with Cain and Abel? Like God is saying no more death. Right. In a weird way, verse 6 is a kind of retribution mm-hmm. on the sanctity of human life. Right. Because verse 6 says, so there's a setup here that I will require a reckoning for death entering the world. 
Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. So once again, you get this continuation of the parallel from Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply as well as the image of God language. And so in a weird way, we're being reaffirmed of the the sanctity of human life, being made in the image of God and the likeness of God. Actually, likeness is left off here. That just clicked for me. Hmm. But same kind of parallel. Right. And in it, there's retribution. Right. If you kill God's image, retribution is that your image dies. Now, I'll be honest, it's a very weird way of doing retribution. Mm-hmm. But that's what it is. It's it's this setup that, that human life is so sacred that if you kill it, the same penalty you do to it is done to you. Um, like that's how much God cares about the human. Right. And then he says again, and you be fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. Once again, very similar language to what we saw in Genesis 1. So you have this starting over of sorts. It's almost like what happened in chapter 1, 2 didn't work because of chapter 3. And so then God says, okay, we're going to kick him out of the garden and let him just live outside the garden east of Eden. Right. And then we get to the point through verse or the beginning part of chapter 6 where God's like, okay, this is just so terrible. I've got to start over. Mm-hmm. So he picks Noah and his family and does the ark and does the flood, kills off everybody else. And now this is a moment where we're starting over again. Right. Once again, this is a new subset of the same narrative. Right. And I think that's important because... How do Adam and Eve, quote-unquote, sin in the garden? Uh, Some level of pursuit, like wrongfully placed pursuit. Mm -hmm. Something along those lines. We're going to, I think what we're going to call it throughout this series is fruit abuse. Fruit abuse. It's it's this kind of thing where you're you're kind of on track, but you're abusing something that God has given you. Hmm. Interesting. Noah commits fruit abuse. Yep. God told him to go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and all these things. And then God makes a promise with him. No, I'm never going to do what I just did ever again. Yeah. And I'm going to give you and me both a visible reminder. It even says... Verse 13, I've set a bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you. So God's putting it there as much for himself as he is for us. Right. It's this kind of mutual covenant here. Then that section of the narrative ends and we pick up in verse 20 for our purposes. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. All right. 
before we enter into this text, I need everybody to know that this is about to be a very strange story. That we've talked about it before. We have, but we've got a lot of new listeners. Yeah. This is about to be a very strange story that really scholars are all over the place on what is actually happening in this moment and what's the problem. Yeah. But the story must be told. Verse 22, and Ham and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, and we're going to get to that curse in a minute. So basically, if you didn't follow the story, basically what happens is Noah gets off the boat and has this really spiritual moment with God where he's told to be fruitful and multiply. And the text says, Noah's a man of the soil. So what does he do? He goes and plants a fruit. Yep. And then he makes wine with it and gets drunk. Yes. Mega drunk. Yeah. So drunk that he just goes into his tent and takes his clothes off. That's an uncomfortable level of drunk. I would imagine so, yes. Yes, that is a very uncomfortable amount of drunk. And his youngest son goes into the tent. Now, and this is where scholars debate we are unsure the likelihood of whether or not they had one big family communal tent or they each had their own tent. Right. Best guess is it's one big communal tent. Right. At least for the first one. Right. So if it's one big communal tent... Ham doesn't necessarily do anything wrong. If it's Abraham's own private tent, which some people want to read into. I mean Noah. Or, sorry, uh, Noah's own private tent, which some people want to read into because it says his tent. Right. But in a patriarchal thing, like, the communal tent would be his tent. So right. you, you've got a possible reading either way. So... Ham goes in, and Noah's drunk, and he sees his father's nakedness. Now, remember, this is a parallel story set up to Genesis 1, which right. also means it's a parallel of 2 and 3. Okay. What happens at the end of chapter 2? What's the final verse of chapter 2? And God clothed them with fur. No, of chapter 2. They haven't sinned oh, yet. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, that they're uh, naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. Then they sin, and the first thing they feel is shame about their nakedness. Yeah. This is chapter 2 and 3 together mm. in this parallel. Noah is ashamed of his nakedness. If that is true... Then what's the sin? If he's already feeling the shame 
in the parallel story, right? Obviously, Noah's felt shame before because sure. he sinned. But like in the parallel story, what would be Noah's sin? Fruit abuse. Fruit abuse. That's Noah's sin. It's fruit abuse. And so he feels shame when he wakes up and figures it out. There's this really kind of unique story where his other two sons go and try to cover it. Like they understand that something is off here. Right. And then Noah wakes up and you get chapter three and four parallel when he wakes up because when Noah wakes up and he figures out what's happened, he offers a curse just like God does at the end of chapter three. But you also get chapter four because he largely commands death against the image of God, just like Cain does. Because this is what he says in verse 25. He said, cursed be Canaan. Now, notice this. And this is where I say we're not good readers of our Bible. Who's Canaan? Uh, that would be uh, Ham's son. It's Ham's son. Yeah. Who wronged Abraham? Or who wronged Noah? Well, depending on how you read it, nobody, but um, Ham. Ham. So Noah skips his son and curses his, his grandson. grandson. Yeah. Innocent blood. Yeah. Just like Abel. Cursed be Canaan. Lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed by the Lord, my God, be Shem and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth and let him live in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his slave. It's pretty harsh words there, Noah. About your grandson who is innocent. Who didn't do anything wrong other than be born be fathered from the son that you now hate. Yeah. And here's the deal. This is a very big moment because this text has been used and weaponized to hurt and harm a ton of people. Yep. Now, here's the other thing that I will say. I recognize that. The biggest problem here is that in Hebrew literature, curses, Hebrew literature and tradition, curses cannot be undone. Right. They cannot be taken back. They can be fixed, which is part of the Jesus element, mm. but they cannot be undone. You can't just, if you throw a curse back, you can't just go, oh, JK, I was mad. I'm withdrawing my curse. Right. Same with a blessing. That's why in the Jacob and Esau story, when Esau goes to Isaac, he says, what have you done? He goes, I can't. What's done? Like, I cannot change this. Hmm. Fruit abuse makes some things happen that you can't take back. In a very literal sense, like, I know that there are drunks in the world. Yeah. Like, fruit abuse can make you do some things you can't take back. 
And I think once again, I, I would stand by this. The Bible never says that you can't drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. The Bible says that you can't get drunk, that you shouldn't be a drunkard, but it never says you shouldn't drink alcohol. And I actually think that, I mean, uh, Jesus drinks, I'm, I'm pretty sure that like it's a big part of it. And so I don't think Noah's wrong for drinking. No, that's not what he's wrong for. He's wrong for getting drunk. Like overindulging. Like overindulging to this level. Um, he's wrong for fruit abuse. Yeah. And in, in a very interesting way, this story parallels all of what we've seen previously. Literally, like almost point for point. Right. In a different way, in a different frame of storytelling, but it's a parallel of Genesis 1 through 4. Which tells us... Even even to the point that God scatters Cain, well, and then we didn't read it, but Noah scatters his sons. Right. What that tells us is that that narrative is super important. Right? That God repeats it and second time around. Um, yeah. It's very important. It's super important. And here, once again, I think the same statements stand true that I made at the end of the first telling of this story in this series. That Noah's intent wasn't to do anything wrong. Right. But sometimes fruit abuse puts you in places where you do some royally stupid things. Yeah. I, and I would say Noah does too. Not just the getting drunk, but the curse that he Over, commands is rough. Overindulging in the good things that God gives us. Yeah. Um, it's process addiction in a way. Um, can be. Yeah, I think it's it's a lot of things, but I think I think more so what it is is it's you trying to live this command to be fruitful and multiply and live out your image and likeness, your, your fullness of divinity, which is where we're told our identity should be. Um, it's us trying to do it in the wrong ways. Right. Um, now look, you guys know I'm not, I'm not like the massive, like super rule follower person. Um, I said like super rule follower person. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not legalistic about the law in any kind of way. Like I definitely think that Jesus's grace is bigger than that type of lifestyle. But I do think there are some things that we do that are fruit abuse. I think we all do. Now there's a twofold encouragement here. Number one, God picked the most, God made perfect human beings. Right. And they did this. And then God said, okay, well, I'm going to start over with the most righteous kid or the most righteous person on the earth. And it happened again. So I think there's some encouragement like, hey, God knows yeah. that there's some stuff going on here. Um, I get it. Like, I, I knew that I had to fix this with Jesus. So right. you're welcome. Um but I, I don't think God's up there like, oh, my God, I can't believe they did this again. I, right. 
I don't think that's God's disposition. I think God's up there going, Hey, I think you're doing better than you think you are. Yeah. Um, but so let that be an encouragement. But at the same point, I do, I do think there's a, a charge to each of us to ask ourselves the question. I mean, to be fruitful and multiply is a command to live out the things of God. Right. And we're going to continue down this series and, and, and keep looking at this. And that's that metaphor is deeply tied to our image. I mean, once again, even here, when God's starting over, you get image and fruitfulness and multiplication again, like, this is uniquely important to God. And so I think each of us have this kind of um, fruitful element within us that we're trying to fill in some kind of way. Like there's just this innate desire, this draw to fruitfulness. And you can be like Noah and you can fill that fruitfulness need with fruit abuse. Right. Or there's a way to do it where you fully embrace this kind of fruitful divinity, this this bliss that we're designed to pursue and be in pursuit of and ultimately achieve. Right. Um, I think one of the epitomes of like the fruitful divinity, and we may talk about this story. I haven't decided yet in in the calendar. But Abraham, I mean, um, Moses, when he uh, meets God on the mountaintop, when he comes down, he's glowing. Right. And then the narrative makes, he's like radiating, like he's glowing. Um, I think there's a way to even momentarily achieve fruitful divinity. Right. Um, but I think it becomes really hard when we've littered our fruitful capacity with fruit abuse. And so I do think there's something like, I think we have to ask ourselves sometimes like, Hey, are there, are there things that I'm doing for myself right now that are unhealthy for me? Yeah. Um, and I think it could be, I mean, it could be a ton of things. It doesn't even, it doesn't even have to be some overtly sinful thing. I think even just simply something like, Hey, I spend too much time watching TV. Like maybe this is not the best rhythm of life. Right. Um, Hey, maybe, maybe my anxiety's high and like, I need to find some new rhythms to handle that for myself. Um, I don't think that fruit abuse has to be in these kind of heinous ways that we've seen in the, in the story up to this point. I do think they can be sure, but I don't think they have to be. I think it can be a lot of different questions for ourselves. And I, I think for me, the question that I always tell people I want you to ask is I don't want you to think, Oh, I've got to be perfect tomorrow. I'm not anywhere near perfect. So like, don't, I'm not going to hold anybody that perfection standard, but the litmus test that I'm finding for fruitful divinity is, am I better today than I was yesterday? Yeah. And am I putting things in place that I can be better tomorrow than I was today?